Well, in the letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes these most amazing words. We talked about them last week. This is what he writes. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the very next word that the Apostle Paul pens is this word in verse 12. Therefore, therefore. The Apostle Paul writes this, in light of the fact that Jesus left all of glory and humbled himself and became a man and then became a servant. In light of the fact that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. In light of the fact that God therefore exalted him to the highest place so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, what? That's what we're going to talk about today. What is it that we ought to do? What is it that Paul is calling us to do in light of this incredible understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done? And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And we're going to walk through this passage. And traditionally, there's been some controversy over this passage about what it means. But when we look at it clearly in light of what Paul is saying here, it becomes crystal clear what it is that we're to do. So this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, therefore... In light of all that we know about Jesus that he just talked about. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. In light of what Jesus has done, you and I are called to work out our own salvation. And this, this phrase, this idea of working out our own salvation has caused all kinds of misunderstanding throughout the years because people say, well, how on earth could Paul say we're to work out our own salvation? Doesn't the Bible teach? I mean, isn't Ephesians 2.8 abundantly clear that salvation is a gift, that it is the gift of God through grace by faith and not by works so that no one can boast? So how is it then, Paul, that you can say that we need to work out our own salvation? And see, to understand what Paul is saying here, you have to understand the the broader concept, the biblical concept of salvation that Paul is working with. You see, when it comes to our salvation, there's a number of parts. There's the part where we give our life to follow Jesus, where we accept Jesus' death on our behalf, his resurrection, and that's called justification. That's the point in our salvation where we begin our journey of salvation with Jesus. But then there's a part of our salvation that's all about becoming more like Jesus. It's a lifelong process called sanctification. And then there's the end when we end up in glory with Jesus and there's no more sin and no more sorrow, no more brokenness in our life. And that's called glorification. In other words, our salvation has three parts. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. It has a, a past when we gave our life to Jesus, a present, we're growing more like Jesus and a future when we will be with Jesus. And the part of our salvation that Paul is calling us to work out with fear and trembling is the part of right now, the present, the middle, the sanctification, that part which calls us to be more like Jesus. And Paul says, that's something that we have to work at. It's a little bit like marriage. You know, on the day that Newell and I were married, we stood before the pastor. He stood up, he pronounced, you you know, husband and wife, you may kiss the bride. I like that part of the, the ceremony a lot. But in that moment, Newell and I, we were married. Legally, 
before God, in the eyes of all the witnesses and ours, we were married, case closed, full stop. But the fact of the matter is, that was just the beginning of marriage. I mean, marriage is this lifelong process of learning to know and love and walk together with one another. And, and if you asked me at the beginning of marriage, you know, like, what's this going to take? I'd be like, well, obviously, love. We're in love with each other. It'll just be love and happiness. and It's just going to flow naturally. You know, it only took us a couple of weeks to understand that it's going to take a, a, a whole pile of work, a lot of work. Not because we didn't love each other, but because we did love one another. And therefore, we had to work at our marriage. We had to work at, at, at walking together and knowing one another, which would lead to this beautiful, rich, amazing life that we would have together. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here when it comes to our salvation. We're saved in the moment when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. That's the beginning of the process of salvation in our life. But, but, but if we want to experience the richness and the power and the beauty of what it means to, to have God in our life, then we have to work out our salvation in the real world. We have to work it out with fear and trembling. And that takes work. You know, following Jesus isn't all just about like, love will find a way. You know, let go and let God. I just sit back. God's going to do it all in my life. Can't have that kind of attitude. I mean, if you have that attitude towards marriage, you know, love will just make a way. I just sit back. If you have that kind of attitude, often it doesn't take long. And either you're no longer married or you're living in a very difficult marriage. And the same is true when it comes to our faith. If that's your attitude about faith, it doesn't take long. And either you've abandoned the faith or you're just in this kind of functional atheism. You're, you're, you, you claim to be following God, but you, there's not really a lot of God at work in your life. And Paul says this, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he did on the cross and how God has exalted him, you and I are to work out our relationship with him. We're to work at it with both fear and, in trem and trembling. So what, what Paul is really saying here, and I, I put it this way, is in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and me, we need to focus on our own spiritual growth. We need to work at becoming more like Jesus. You know a number, many years ago, I worked as a high school teacher for a couple of years and I had a really good principal. And he used to come into a staff meeting and he would say this. He said, there are some teachers who have 30 years of experience and there are other teachers who have one year of experience 30 times over. And what he was saying is, look, it doesn't matter how long you've been a teacher if you don't keep growing in how to become a better teacher. And the same is true when it comes to following Jesus. You know, I know people who have followed Jesus 30 years in their life, but they haven't grown any more than they did in their first year of following Jesus. And if you don't work at growing in your relationship with Jesus, if you don't invest in your spiritual growth, you'll stop growing. And we've all experienced that at one time or another, right? I mean, we've all come to places along our journey where sometimes we've stalled or we've stopped in our spiritual growth. The problem is we can't stay there. We got to keep growing. And, and sometimes we stop because we're bored. So, sometimes we get distracted by something that looks so shiny over there. and We just want to follow it. S sometimes we stop growing because we've had a hard experience, either within the church or in our life. And we're like, well, that, I, that's not what I expected God would do that. That's not what I thought following Jesus would be like. So like I'm, I'm kind of following him, but I'm not really that interested in doing much more than the bare minimum. And sometimes we've allowed sin to go unconfessed and unchecked in our life. And that sin has slowly grown and just choked the, the joy of our salvation out of our lives. 
or we end up, or we end up just pursuing something else that we think will bring us more fulfillment and more meaning and more purpose in our lives. And the problem is we've lost sight of the majesty and the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And, and the result is that while we still identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, there's very little spiritual growth in our lives. So today, if you were to examine your own heart, if you just stop right now and look in your own heart, where would you say you are spiritually? I mean, would you say, yeah, I'm on fire, I'm growing like crazy? Would you say, it's solid, there's a, there's a steady growth, I'm working at it. Would you say, you know, actually my life, I'm kind of stalled, I'm, I'm kind of drifting. Or maybe you're even saying like, man, my, my spiritual walk is kind of on life support. You know, the call of the Spirit on your life today is to work out your salvation, to begin to work on that growing to be more like Jesus with fear and trembling. And that's whatever that looks like is going to depend on where you are. You know, there are a number of you who know that Jesus loves you. You know that Jesus died on the cross for you and, and you believe it with all your heart. But after that, everything gets a little vague. The rest of what you believe or what it means to follow Jesus is kind of like squishy and soft. And if that's you, you know, you need to grow deeper in the foundations. I mean, you need to understand what the Bible teaches about the Trinity and, and the big picture of, you know, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, what's the big story of what God's doing? You need to continue to grow in your knowledge of what the Bible teaches. For others of you, the issue in your life right now is some sort of nagging doubt. There's some doubt about faith that you just don't really want to deal with because it's kind of in the shadows, but you're worried if you bring it into the light that it will become real and now all of a sudden you've got a major problem. You shouldn't do that. Instead, you need to turn a, a light on that thing and bring it to light before it grows so big that it chokes the faith out of your life. And I promise you, if you look at it carefully, not in this sort of popular thing of deconstructing your whole faith and kind of pulling your life apart until you got nothing, but rather in a sense of saying, Okay, here's a doubt that I have. What does the scriptures teach about it? I promise you, the scriptures will give you the kind of an answer that gives you clarity and the best possible answer to the questions you have. Others of you, the question isn't a question of Bible knowledge or of doubts. For you, you, you don't have those issues. Your challenge, where you need to work out your faith is that you know all that stuff. You just need to put it in action in your life. You need to work at finding space in your life where you pour your life out into others, where you serve others, where you live it out for the people around you. And for others of you, you need to grow in a specific area. You need to say, what does the Bible teach about forgiveness? Because I'm struggling with forgiveness. What does the Bible teach about being a, a Christian employer? And, and what does that look like for me? What, what does the Bible teach me about how to raise my children to follow Jesus in a world where every message that they get tells them the exact opposite of how to live? What does the Bible teach me about how it is that I ought to pray? What do I need to learn about how to read the Bible and understand it or to worship? Where is it in your life that God is inviting you next to work at going deeper, at growing more, at understanding what it is? That's the call of God in your life, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you're like, yeah. I know, but I, I don't feel like it. I, I know that I should, but I don't really, I don't have the energy. I've tried it, you know. That's what Paul is going to address next. Here, here's what he says in the very next verse, in verse 13. He says this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, hear what he just said. I mean, 
In the last verse that we just looked at, in verse 12, he says, it is your responsibility. In fact, he makes one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture about it, your responsibility for your spiritual growth. And then in the very next sentence, the one that we just read, verse 13, he says, actually, it's God who is going to, in his sovereignty, ensure your growth. So the question is, Paul, what are you saying? On the one hand, you're saying, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And on the other hand, you're saying, because God's going to work it out in you. So what's the answer? And the answer that Paul gives to that question is yes, both at the, at the same time. You see, oftentimes people misunderstand what the Bible teaches about this whole process of sanctification, of, of becoming more like Jesus. Some people think that the Bible teaches that we really can't do anything. It's just God who does it in us. So I'm just going to sit back in my lazy chair. I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to sit back. And I'm just going to wait until God finally sparks a change in my life whenever he decides to. And it's kind of like, you know, I might be a nasty son of a gun, but there's not really much I can do about it until God changes my heart. So you just got to live with it. That's an unbiblical idea. It's not what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, there are those who take the opposite extreme. And they see it more like, you know, God is this sort of judgmental father standing there and looking and saying, get it right in your own strength. Do it on your own. And when you finally get it right, then I'll kind of give you a nod like, yeah, it's okay. That's not a biblical idea either. Others look at this verse and they think that it's saying that God helps those who help themselves. In other words, they think it's saying, look, you work at it really hard. And when you kindly finally get it going, God will come along and kind of give you a push over the top. But that's not what it is either. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying, you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is already at work in you. You, you should pursue a deeper, richer, more beautiful walk with Jesus because the Spirit of God is already doing that very thing in your life. The energy and the power that you need to see that happen, that's already at work by the Spirit of God in you. You know, when I was a kid, my, uh, I got a, a steam engine, a model steam engine, and you put the water in, you put the fire underneath, and you heated it up. And, and then you'd wait, and nothing would happen until finally you would take, there's a little flywheel and a piston, and you'd spin that thing, and suddenly that thing would just vibrate. This flywheel would turn so fast, it would just, it would literally vibrate with the power coming out of it. And that's kind of the picture here is this, you, you know, you put the fire in and the water in, but but the fire is something that God does and the turns the steam God does and you spin that thing. But there's just this power inside that's just waiting to kind of go. And it's, it's a both and. and. And see, in essence, what Paul is saying here is this. He's both commanding us to work out our salvation, to, to work at following Jesus, but he's also giving us a promise that as we do that, the Spirit of God is already at work in our lives. And so we will grow. It will become richer. It will become more meaningful. It will become more beautiful. There's this confidence that we have in that, which means that we can't become lazy when it comes to following Jesus and say, well, he just got to do it. Nor do we become prideful when the change comes saying, ha ha, look how good I am. Rather, it means that we come with a deep sense of confidence that God is going to do in our lives what he promises to do. And, and we're supposed to do that because of who Jesus is because of the majesty and glory of Jesus. So that's where Paul starts. But then he shifts. Then he shifts all of a sudden. And he's, you know, he's talking about this brilliant command, live out your faith and, and God's going to work in your life. And now suddenly he's going to talk about one of the things that will keep us from doing this very thing. 
He's going to mention a sin, but it's not going to be one of the sins that you would think. You're going to be surprised by what he says, I think. Here's what he says. Verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. You may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here's the sin that Paul warns us will stunt our spiritual growth. It's the sin of grumbling and questioning. Now, I don't know about you, but that surprised me. I'd have thought he'd be like, you know, don't murder, adultery, or, um, you know, no lying or, or lusting. But instead, he says, the sin that you need to be most worried about in this area is the, is the sin of complaining, the sin of questioning everything, which is, which is surprising because, uh, you know, we'd think these other things would be much more of a stunt on our growth, our spiritual growth, and in some ways they would. But most of us don't succumb to those sins, at least not as regularly as complaining. And here's why complaining is such a major problem, because the beauty of complaining, the, the glory of complaining is that it allows us to take the focus off of what we need to work on in our life and to project that focus on someone else, to question them, to say, look, their life is such a mess. They're screwing it up so bad. At least I don't feel so bad about the fact that I'm not growing closer and more like Jesus. And, and so we grumble and complain. And grumbling and complaining in our world has taken on the form of a fine art. Yeah, I was reading uh, not long ago some of the complaints uh, that uh, uh, were leveled in the, in the travel world. And uh, there's just a number that just blow your mind. There was this lady in 2018, traveled to Spain for a holiday. When she came back, she went to her travel agent and she demanded a refund because she said that when she went to Spain, quote, there were too many Spanish people. And she said, uh, she went on to suggest that, uh, quote, the Spanish people should go somewhere else for their holidays. She complained. She demanded a refund. And then another customer uh, said they complained because they didn't get a tan on their holiday. This is what they wrote. They said, we were told we would get a great tan, but we stayed inside all day, so we didn't get a tan. Really, go figure. And then there's this one. Uh, my fiance and I booked a twin bedded room, but we were placed in a double bed. I'm now pregnant. <laughs> I love it. The reason she's pregnant is the hotel's fault. And then, of course, there's this, uh, the, the last one here is this. Uh, this, uh, whoever it was, went to a resort and they wrote this. The water tasted funny, so I had to drink cocktails all week. Now I can't remember half my holiday. Great. Apparently no one ever talked to them about bottled water. But the fact of the matter is, you know, it's amazing how easily we complain about all of these types of things. But the complaints that the Apostle Paul is talking about here go much deeper than that. The kind of complaints that he is talking about are the kind of complaints where we complain about what God is doing in our life and questioning him or complaining about the other people that are in our world and in our church. And here's how we know this, because in these verses that we're looking at here, Paul makes a sudden and very profound shift in reference to the Old Testament. In fact, the uh, theologian and the uh, scholar Gordon Fee writes this. He says, this passage is most striking feature the sudden and profuse influx of echoes from the Old Testament, which is quite unlike anything else in the entire writings of the Apostle Paul. So when Paul speaks of grumbling and questioning, the language that he's using there echoes the kind of language used in Exodus 16, 12, and really through much of Exodus. And when he speaks about uh, being blameless, he's referring to a passage out of Genesis 17, 1, where God calls Abraham to be blameless before him. 
And when he speaks about a crooked and twisted generation, those are literally Moses' words out of Deuteronomy 32.5. And when he talks about shining as lights in the world, that's a phrase out of Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. So suddenly Paul reaches way back into the Old Testament with his very dense echoes of all of these stories in the Old Testament. And what he wants to happen now is for the story of the Old Testament to echo in our minds as he talks to us about our own life. And he starts out by saying this, do all things without grumbling or questioning. And you see, the people of Israel, you know the story of the Exodus, when they left Egypt, it was because of the miraculous, unbelievable power of God that they witnessed with their very own eyes that led them out of Egypt and towards the, 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 de the desert. And it wasn't but three days and they began to grumble about, about against Moses and, and, and against God. And it was like, where are you leading us to? And then God opens the Red Sea and rescues them. And then they grumble about, there's no water here. And then when God responds to that, then they grumble, we don't have any food. And then they grumble, well, we don't like the food that we're getting. And then they grumble about the people in the promised land. And then they grumble about Moses and ultimately about God. And, and in spite of seeing repeatedly over and over and over the power and the majesty of God, they just kept grumbling. And Paul wants that ringing in our ears. And then he says this, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of what you have seen, which is greater than what the Israelites saw, what Jesus did, God himself humbled and dead on a cross and rose again and exalted, much greater than any miracle that the Israelites ever said. In light of that, don't complain and grumble and question what God's doing. Or what's happening in the, in, you know, what God is doing in the world around you. And yet it's so easy for us to complain. We complain about everything. We complain about our circumstances, like as if what God did by sending his son to die for us wasn't enough. We expect more. We, 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 we complain about, uh, about the pressures in our world. That, you know, the culture is putting all this pressure against us. And, and how dare we, as if somehow God owes us an easy life and no pressure in our world. And then we complain about the people in our life, our coworkers, our friends, the people at church, even our own spouse. And my wife was telling me about this lady who she said was married to a guy who was handsome, rich and funny. I knew right away we weren't talking about me. Uh, and, uh, and she went on to say that he made it possible that his wife didn't have to work if she didn't want to. And, uh, and she had this great deal in this husband, but she ended up. But he, the one thing he wanted her to do was to clean the house. And she was so upset about it. She complained about it incessantly. How dare he ask me to do that? And she, she ended up ultimately divorcing him and leaving all of these good things because all she could focus on was this one thing that he wanted her to do. And, and, and that kind of thing happens in the church. We complain about the church. You know, I, I listened to somebody who said in the church that they were in, they said there was a hundred great things going. No, if there's a hundred things going 97 of them were wonderful. So excited about what God was doing, but there was three things that they didn't like. And because of that, they were going to leave the church. And the three things they didn't like wasn't like heresy or scandal. It was just three things that they didn't like. And the fact of the matter is it's easy to complain. It's easy to find fault. It's easy to question other motive, others' motives and their integrity because it means that then we don't have to examine the issues in our own life. That when we complain and grumble and question, it gives us a get out of free jail card when it comes to working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's what Paul is saying to us in this next set of verses. And that says, don't focus on everyone else's shortcomings. 
It's too easy to do, and it's a cheap way out. In marriage, you know that you do this. I, we all do this. It's like, I know I got some stuff, but my spouse, she should be working on her thing. Then things would be better. And in church, this happens often. Instead of seeing what God is doing and getting involved in it, knowing that a church is a group of imperfect, flawed people, but people who are trying to follow Jesus together. Instead, people sit back and say, well, the church didn't do this. And how could they have done that? And what's the matter with this? And they miss out on what God wants to do in their midst. And it happens ultimately with God. When we complain that God isn't working in our life the way that we think he should, that he owes us more than he's already given us. And Paul says, don't go there. Rather, here's what he calls us to do in the next verse. He says uh, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When he says blameless, he means so that you are above reproach. And when he says innocent, he doesn't mean naive. He means rather that you enter into relationships with the assumption that you're assuming the best about someone rather than with the suspicion that you begin with what's worst about them. And when he says without blemish, he's reminding us that Jesus has already paid the price for our own sins. And he goes on to say this so that we would uh, so that in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we would shine as lights in the world. Imagine, imagine in another place, another translation, it talks about stars in the night. You know, in our culture where everybody complains about others, where it's almost expected that you rage against what they did, what they should have done, what they could have done. How refreshing, how attractive if there was this group of people who followed Jesus, and instead of always looking and blaming and judging and coming with suspicion to everybody else, instead they looked in their own lives and said, how can I be more like Jesus? How can I be formed more in the image of the one who set me free? That would be incredibly attractive. That, that would cause us, if we lived that way, to be like stars in the night, lights in the darkness. People would be drawn to Jesus. And, and Paul ends this section this way. He says this, live this way, he says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, live this way. Because then I know that my life, my efforts, the, the way that I have poured my life out for you has not been in vain. And he, he talks about his life as a drink offering, a, a kind of sacrifice that was poured out as an offering to God. And he says, if you do this, it's like as if my life is poured out on your life. My offering is poured out on another offering. And that offering here, he says, is the sacrificial offering of your faith. You see, here's what Paul is saying at the end of this passage. He's saying, when we live this way, when, when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. When we seek to grow spiritually, rather than looking to just blame others and to complain about what's going on, he says that becomes an act of worship. That becomes an offering to God. Because it's not easy. There's things that you know, are hard in that process. But when you offer your life in gratitude to God for what he's done, when you remember who Jesus is and what he has done for you, and you live this way, it's a way of you confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's a way of you bending your knee and saying, I submit my life, all of my life to Jesus. And that 
is an act of worship to him. I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to close in prayer. And then I want to ask you to, to, to listen to a video right after that uh, about a, an opportunity for ministry uh, that continues to be open for us and we want you to partner with us. Uh, but first, let's pray. God, we thank you again for what Jesus has done. We thank you again for the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. And God, in light of that, may we not sit back and just coast. May we not live as if somehow it's not a big deal what Jesus has done, but rather may we, in light of it, work out our salvation. May we grow spiritually. God, I pray for those of us who are stuck, who are stalled, who are spinning our wheels. God, would we, would we be obedient and begin to pursue an active relationship with you, knowing that that power is right there, that it will just come to life as we begin that process. And God, may, in fact, we want to confess, we repent where we have complained and questioned you, where we've complained and questioned others, rather than looking in our own heart. And Father, forgive us for doing that. And God, help us to, to focus again on what you want to do in our lives. God, so that you would receive the glory, so that you would be glorified in our lives and that people would be drawn to you as we follow after you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.